Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Welcome back. We're here at the end of the Cree looking at the essay Science and Truth. There's a lot going on in this essay, and yet at the same time, Lacan is just driving at a couple of pretty straightforward and classic Lacanian notions, namely that of the split subject and the cause of its division, as named with object A. Let's start briefly with the discussion of science here. So science and psychoanalysis ever since Freud has been a big topic. Freud thought that psychoanalysis belonged in the hard sciences down the hall from biology, chemistry, hydraulics, and the like. Lacan is more ambiguous about what he believes the relationship between science and psychoanalysis to be. Um, Some important things to bear in mind. When Lacan says science, he's usually thinking of the modern interest in objectivity in the world of objects. Lacan's very careful though, especially at this period of his career in the 60s, to distinguish between the study of objectivity, modern science, and the study of objectality, which he identifies with psychoanalytic inquiry. Objectality is not the study of objects. Instead, it's the study of causes, not the field of stuff but the condition for its emergence as an object of inquiry. Objectality has to do with psychoanalysis. Objectivity is a delusional, almost paranoid fantasy of modern science, in many cases for Lacan, and that comes up in this essay too. Objectality has to do not with objects, but with openings, with the cause of, in this case, a subject. So let's be really clear out of the gates here. In this essay, Lacan is thinking about two things, the subject of psychoanalysis and the object of psychoanalysis. But the subject is not some coherent subject like the science of man studying humans, no. The subject of psychoanalysis is always a barred or divided or split subject which recurs throughout this essay. And the object of psychoanalysis isn't as much an object as it is a cause. It is the cause for the subject of sciences splitting that interests Lacan here. The object of psychoanalysis, because it deals more with causes, is more of a object cause than it is a proper object that could be studied like an ant on a log. The math theme or the algebraic symbol for this cause is little a, object a, and it comes up in this essay. Let's look at a quick page here to get us started. Great opportunity for us to start is on page 733, where he talks about the object of psychoanalysis about middle of the page, 733 in the English 
translation. The object of psychoanalysis. I am laying down my cards now. You may have already guessed my hand, given this talk of the object. Is no other than what I have already proposed about the function played in analysis by object A. There you see that little italicized A. Is knowledge of object A thus the science of psychoanalysis? This is precisely the equation that must be avoided, since object A must be inserted, as we already know, into the division of the subject by which the psychoanalytic field is quite specifically structured. This is the point with which I resumed my seminar today. So the subject of psychoanalysis is a divided subject. And this little a that is the object cause for psychoanalytic inquiry, he says, is to be inserted right in that division that divides the subject. So there's the conceptual outline. Now let's turn and see if we can make sense of this. Let's start with this subject of psychoanalysis, this divided or split subject. Now there are lots of ways for us to arrive at this individual. Um, let's start with the easiest, most simple way of this. It's one you've probably heard before. So there you are. You are a newborn infant. You're crying out. Whenever something is off, you just cry about it. It doesn't mean that you know what you're crying about. It just means that something feels off. Hunger feels off. Being cold feels off. Being tired feels off and all produce the same effect, namely a cry. The child starts crying when they're uncomfortable and the primary caregiver or whomever is taking care of you shows up and ideally tries to address the cause of your crying. They might guess that you're cold and bring you a blanket. If you're still crying, they'll realize they guessed wrong and try something else, perhaps food. If they feed you and you're not interested, then maybe they think sleep and then they try and get you to sleep and they work through all the possible meanings of your cry. Now you don't know what your cry means, except that you're uncomfortable. They're trying to guess the action that they can perform that will satisfy the need, the biomaterialistic, animalistic, embodied need, being cold, being hungry, being tired, these are all bodily phenomena, that caused you to cry. Now, when they do that, they're doing a couple of things. First, they're interpreting your cry. They're assigning meaning to it. Over time, though, the child can learn that when I cry, mommy or daddy or grandma or grandpa or whomever takes care of you shows up with food. They can learn that the meaning of the cry is food. They can learn that whatever you show up with on a regular basis is the meaning of the cry. Over time, though, the primary caregiver starts to tell the growing child that crying is no longer sufficient. They now need to use their words, words that the primary caregiver has probably been speaking to the infant every single time they showed up with a blanket. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you cold? Here's a blanket for you. Let's get you wrapped up. Let's get you bundled up. Oh, tired baby. Let's help you get to sleep. Oh, baby's hungry. Okay, here's some food for you. Mm, you like that? Mm, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? So there's all this language that comes 
with the satisfaction of material need. Over time, the primary caregiver gets tired of responding to cries and the child develops enough skill to be able to articulate or express their needs in language. That is a demand in Lacanian terms. A demand is a need expressed in language. Initially, it was the primary caregiver's job to take the expression of need at the level of a cry and integrate it into the field of language, thereby rendering it a demand by interpreting that cry and guessing what the child might need in that moment, whether it's a blanket to keep them warm, some food to satisfy their hunger, some rocking in order to help them sleep. Now, over time, though, the primary caregiver starts to ask the child to go ahead and do that work for them. Don't just cry when you have a need. Express it in language. Use your words. So you can hear primary caregivers, parents, whomever, telling the child, I can't understand you when you cry like that. It's, I, don't, I can't help you unless you can calm down, take a deep breath, and tell me what it is that's on your mind. Tell me what it is that's bothering you. And the kid will try and do this, usually caught up in their embodied, affectively intense experience in that moment that produces the cry. And their rather disembodied pressure to put that into words, into an abstract symbolic system that the primary caregiver is already enmeshed in and can then use to help the child ostensibly. And so you see kids in this moment doing a lot of, uh, I just can't, and you may even remember this experience. You're so upset, you're crying, but you're trying to force it into words. And you're struggling. It's a jumbled, stammering discourse, but a discourse nonetheless. That discourse is a demand. It's a demand because you're taking the very embodied experience of need, which is biological, materialistic, animalistic, and you are mediating it in and through language, in and through what language supports social order, relationships, intersubjective relationships with other people in a socially constituted and linguistically propped up world. Now, eventually, you get access to all of that. You still experience bodily need, as you do right now. You can still feel hungry and tired and hot and all of these things. But you now have access, in a very fluent way, to language. And if you're really good at this stuff, you're able to take how you're feeling as an embodied subject and put it into words that other people can understand and work with. This is pretty crucial, especially in relationships where you have some affective and emotional issues that you can then put into words, sentences that begin with, I feel, I feel statements. That is helpful to partners, to friends, to family members, because they don't know what it's like to have your body, to be inside your skin. They don't know that pain. They don't know what it feels like. Bodily pain is private. It's at the level of language that it can be pressed out, expressed, and shared with another person. As this process is developing, though, it creates a split subject, a subject that is divided 
between the bioanimalistic field of need and the sociolinguistic field of demand. There it is. The split subject fundamentally when it emerges out of early childhood is a subject that is no longer strictly immersed in the here and now of the process of the all in eternal becoming. They are now brought into this world of language where they now have a foot in each camp. They are still in part that bioanimalistic infant because they still have a body that experiences need. But now they're also acutely aware of this other field, this field of language in which need can be represented at the level of a signifier, at the level of a word. So this is also how the splitting of the subject occurs. They went from a world that was logically presupposed, because we don't really know what this is like, because there was no language to tell us about it. But the pre-linguistic environment of the infant is one of presence, presence alone. In the field of language, you have presence and absence. Things can be missing in the field of language where they can't in the field of animality. That's a really important move here. Because in the field of language, I can talk about burrito, elephant, bicycle. I can name all of these things that aren't physically present in the room, yours or mine. But nevertheless, I can make them present in the field of language. With language, you can talk about, represent, and call to mind. You can make present via language things that are in actuality, in physicality, in materiality, missing or absent. So part of what happens when the child is inducted into language is that they are also introduced to something other than presence, namely absence, to the way that something can be missing or lacking. That can only occur in the field of language for reasons that we can talk about elsewhere. But for now, let's stick with that very basic sense of splitting. When the child is inducted into the symbolic, into the field of language, they're asked to hold two senses of self. There's an embodied, need-based, biomaterialistic self, which is your body. And then there is this disembodied, linguistic, socialized, kind of abstract self. You'll hear Lacan distinguishing these between the enunciating subject, which is the subject that feels the urge to speak, and the grammatical subject, which is the subject or the part of the self that is represented in the field of language. So for instance, there we are in a conversation, and there's some urge that I have to tell you about myself. And I might say in that conversation, I'm the kind of person who likes to stay up late and watch TV. The question at that point is, what is it about me in that moment as an embodied enunciating speaker that caused me to want to show up and present myself to you as a specific kind of person, namely somebody who stays up late and watches TV? 
You see, there's the part of me that felt the urge to say that. And then there's the part of me that is spoken, represented, and displayed for your approval, ideally, at the level of language. So even in that very basic experience, anytime you use a sentence with the vertical pronoun I, there's a split subjectivity at play there. There's the impulse to speak that is on the side of embodiment. And then there's what is said, the way that you're represented at the level of language. This splitting constantly occurs. But to suggest that there are only two elements in this is incorrect. The basic equation that you have to hold in mind here is that one plus one in Lacanian terms does not equal two. Instead, it equals three. We've been talking about the split subject. And in our last bit, I mentioned that one plus one in Lacanian terms does not equal two. Now here's somebody who associated very strongly science with the mathematizability of a certain practice. Psychoanalysis could be scientific insofar as it approximated formal mathematical practices of representation. That's why you have this very elaborate Lacanian algebra, a series of symbols and signs that are strung together to make formulas, equations, mathemes. One plus one equals three for Lacan. That doesn't mean he's practicing some fuzzy math. I want to illustrate something else there. In the split subject, you have a biomaterialistic self and you have a sociolinguistic self. There's the part of you that feels something in your bones and the part of you that then likes to talk about it with others. There's the part of you that is anchored in a human form, in an animalistic body. And there's the part of you that exists on an envelope being delivered by the mail carrier right now. There's a part of you that exists at the level of a social security number that is being stolen by somebody right now and about to be used to open a new credit card. Now let's hope that's not occurring. But in this abstract sociolinguistic field, the field of grammatical subjects, as Lacan puts it, you're all over the place. You are at the level of your license plate. You are at the level of your email address. Right now, you are doing things online. People are responding to you. People are liking images of you, maybe even forwarding an email that you sent. You're going places and doing things right now in the sociolinguistic field that you didn't even know you were doing. So we have these two senses of self, bioanimalistic and sociolinguistic. But one plus one doesn't equal two. I said it equals three. What is this third element? In addition to the bioanimalistic self and the sociolinguistic self, you have a third element, which is the minimum irreducible distance or difference between these two selves that allows them to remain distinct. That's important here. In order to have two distinct entities, even if they're closely related, in order to have them identifiable as different in some way, there must be some minimum irreducible gap 
or distance between them. Because if there weren't some minimum irreducible distance between them, they would not be two separate entities. We wouldn't be able to separate them. And in fact, they would just be one. And here I struggle to even relay that to you. They would just be one single entity. In fact, there's nothing on my desk, nothing within my reach that I could pick up and show to you and have it displayed as a single undivided entity. Every effort I would try to show you one of these things would produce in and of itself a gap, a split. This is that third element. The third element that allows us to say one plus one equals three is not entity A or entity B, but the minimum irreducible distance between those two entities that allows them to be identifiable as distinct. Now in Lacanian terms, that minimum irreducible gap between two entities that allows them to be identified as distinct is represented by the lowercase italicized letter A. Object A is the minimum distance between two points that allows them to remain distinct. It is a gap. It is a cut. It is an opening between two entities. Now, when I say that psychoanalysis is distinct from modern science, and when I say that that distinction hinges on what they do with objects, this is what it comes back to. Lacan tells us that psychoanalysis doesn't have anything to do with objectivity. That's the field of modern science. Psychoanalysis has to do with the field of what he calls objectality, which is not concerned so much with objects as it is with openings. Not so much concerned with stuff as it is with causes. Lacan's getting at a very simple and quite profound conception here. In order to have something that could constitute an object of modern scientific inquiry, it must be distinguishable from the field of other things. And in order for that distinction to occur, there must be this third element this division, this opening, this gap between what it is you're going to be studying, your object, and this field of other stuff that's not part of your inquiry. In order for that distinction to hold, there must be some minimum irreducible distance or difference between the object you're purporting to study, the shoe on the shelf, and everything else that's on the shelf. Now, this doesn't mean that they're 100% distinct. In fact, what we're looking at here is a differential relationship, a relationship between the shoe and everything else on the shelf that is differential. It's constituted by the difference that's maintained between that shoe and everything else, which in turn allows you to call this an object, something object carry thrown out for you to examine, to turn, and so forth. That's modern science at work, is turning and examining objects. Lacan thinks psychoanalysis trumps modern science because it's less concerned with the objects themselves than with their cause or their conditionality. 
the condition of possibility for an object that modern science could study is this opening or this cut or this gap between that object and the field of non-relevant stuff that you're not going to study in this modern scientific inquiry. Lacan, in other words, is not interested in object one and all the other stuff that's not part of object one study. Let's call that two. He's interested in this third element, the division or the opening that human subjects establish between one object and others in order to isolate this thing and allow it to be investigated in the field of modern science. In other words, the modern scientific obsession with objectivity presupposes the Lacanian psychoanalytic concern with objectality. You can't have an object without also having a cause for its emergence in a field of visibility and, and analyzability. Lacan is concerned with that condition of possibility, with the, which is to say with that cause. And the algebraic term for that cause, because it is always an opening or a division, is little a, this little italicized a. That's the algebraic term that he assigns to cause. And so on page 733, that's what he's queuing up here. The same is true for the split subject. The split subject also has an opening, a fissure, a gap, a division that allows its two senses of self to cohere in a differential relation. That's why Lacan says on page 733, again, object A must be inserted, as we already know, into the division of the subject by which the psychoanalytic field is quite specifically structured. It's inserted into that division or that gap that is inherent to sociolinguistic and biomaterialistic subjectivities. It names that gap, which is why one plus one equals three. There's always this third element that is again, the minimum irreducible distance between the other two entities that allows them to remain distinct. We're back here on science and truth at the end of a degree. At the bottom of page 733, this page that has concerned us, we see the subject's division between truth and knowledge. And then we see this famous Freudian maxim here at the bottom of 733. Where it was, there I must come to be as a subject. Let's start first with this division between truth and knowledge. So far, we've been talking about the subject as divided or split between a bioanimalistic self and a sociolinguistic self. And this third element, this one plus one equals three, this third element is the minimum irreducible distance between these two sides of yourself that allows them to remain distinct. 
yet related. Remember, the relationship between them is a differential one. They are not the same entities, but they do overlap in considerable ways. You might even think of drawing this with two overlapping circles to look something like this. They're not totally distinct. They overlap in this way, but there are gaps and lines of demarcation between them. You could also think of them as two hands pressed together. Here's your bioanimalistic self. Here's your sociolinguistic self. They're smushed together in the form of a split subject, but they're in being smushed together. There's this third element, the crack or the split or the opening between them that always reminds you that they are at root two different hands. No matter how close you press them together, in fact, the closer you press them together, the more pronounced and identifiable that crack becomes. That gap, that minimum irreducible distance between the two hands that shows you that they are always already and irreducibly distinct. Here he gives us another way to approach the split subject. The split subject, he says, is always torn between knowledge and truth. Now, if we want to be a little sloppy about this, but not too inaccurate, we can say that on the side of sociolinguistic you, there is knowledge. And it is always conscious knowledge, knowledge of the ego. So you can stack this up as saying sociolinguistic self maps onto the field of knowledge, and it is always knowledge of an ego, of a moi your sense of me, of who you are. You can know things about yourself. I know that I like to X. I know that I am a daughter or a son. I know, I know, I know. The ego has all of these things that it purports to know about itself. But what you know about yourself is different, according to Lacan, from the truth of what and who you are. What you know about yourself is different from the truth of what and who you are. Truth, on the other hand, if we're going to be, again, a little careless, but not too inaccurate here. Truth is going to go not on the side of knowledge and sociolinguistics and the ego. Truth is going to go on the side of biomateriality, that part of you that is deeply embodied and usually covered up so that no one can see your holiest of holies, your private parts. The body is usually something, in other words, that is repressed, that is hidden away, highly constrained in its operations, be it sexual, be it bioanimalistic at the level of eating, shitting, sweating, burping, gurgling, whatever the noises that the body makes that embarrass our egos, you see. When you're sitting there in the quiet of the evening with your lover and you lean over to give them the sweetest kiss imaginable and you accidentally fart, that's an extremely uncomfortable situation. I mean, just imagining it, I'm sure, brings a smile to your face. Mine too. On this side of bioanimality, 
the same subject of pure need that we started as is active. But usually in a way that we don't like to think about, in a way that I've said is repressed. Things that are repressed go into this category of you known as the unconscious, this place where things go that we don't want to think about. So on the other side of the Lacanian subject, on the biomaterialistic side, there is not knowledge of yourself, but truth about who and what you are. And this truth is usually unconscious, except when it pops up in that lovely evening fart that you cut while leaning over to whisper into your lover's ear. Truth usually emerges, and I would say maybe even almost always emerges, as a rupture in the field of knowledge. It is a radical event that disrupts and calls into question the entire field of objectivity that you were operating in. Now, if you hear me hearkening back to the difference between modern science and Lacanian psychoanalysis, between the title of this essay, Science and Truth, now we're getting after it. This could very well be an essay titled Science Versus Truth. Science is on the side of knowledge. Hence, its fetishization of objectivity. Psychoanalysis is on the side of truth. And not just the truth about who and what you are, but the truth about why you are who and what you are. The key question of science is what? The key question of psychoanalysis is why? Why is science this way? Why are we like this? It's a question, again, not of objectivity, but of objectality. The question of why is a question of cause, which is why throughout the second part of this essay, you hear Lacan saying truth as cause. As we flip through here, we arrive at another interesting passage on 742. After much discussion of truth as cause, it's everywhere in the intervening 10 pages. We get this statement at the bottom of 742. Science does not want to know anything about truth as cause. And then Lacan turns to some German terms. You may recognize therein my formulation of Verwerfung, or foreclosure, which forms a closed series with Verdrängung, repression, and Verneinung, negation, whose function in magic and religion I have indicated in passing. What I have said of the relationship between Verwerfung and psychosis, especially as Verwerfung of the name of the father is apparently at odds here with this attempt at structural situation. This foreclosure that marks the origin of a psychotic clinical structure according to Lacan is an important one. What it fundamentally forecloses is the name of the father. Now this is another wild Lacanian term that again is pretty simple. 
The name of the Father is also the know of the Father. And when Lacan says name of the Father, he knows this. Because name in French sounds exactly the same as know in French. So when audience members hear him say name of the Father, they also hear the know of the Father. Now bracket for a minute the Father side of this, and let's just focus on the know. The know, thou shalt not, has the function of prohibition. And that is precisely what catalyzed the splitting of the subject of pure need into a bioanimalistic and sociolinguistic self was a no, a prohibition, a prohibition issued by the primary caregiver. And it's a prohibition against living life as though the field of imminent present here and now were the only field in which you could live. The know of society, the know of the symbolic, the know of the Father, serves a prohibitive function. It prohibits any further living where you can just cry and expect to get your needs met. You now are always at a fork in the road. Are you going to allow your bioanimalistic self to rule the day and you're just going to cry whenever you're upset? Sometimes that's appropriate. But now you know that there's this other resource, language, that you have access to where you can express your needs in language, issuing them not as cries or as needs, but as requests, namely demands. With every feeling that you have, you always are at that fork in the road. What will you choose? The name of the Father as the know of the Father, this prohibition is a prohibition against any further movement through the world without any forks in the road. Every movement brings you to another fork in the road. It is a prohibition against living life with only one path in front of you. You now always can pursue the bio or the socio. And ideally you've got them woven together somehow, but that's a decision and it's hard work that has to be done by you in a way that an infant doesn't have to do. Science, in a way, forecloses, rules out this very important truth about human subjectivity. Science doesn't want to know anything about the truth as cause. It doesn't want to know anything about the prohibition that produces the split subject. There is no science of man, Lacan says in this essay because there is only a subject of science. And that subject of science, like every other subject in the world, is a split subject. And the cause of that splitting is here, at the level of the name of the Father. When science obsesses, fetishizingly, you could say, about objects and objectivity, part of what they're doing in that moment is foreclosing, according to Lacan, foreclosing any interest in the cause of those objects, in the question of causality, and that's the field of truth. Now, when they foreclose that, it's tempting to say that that would go into the field of the unconscious. But if he's really serious about what he's doing here with foreclosure, it wouldn't be as simple as rendering causality unconscious. That's an important distinction to make here. 
the psychotic's relationship with the unconscious is very different to the extent that it even has a relationship with the unconscious than that of a neurotic person who has affirmed, negated, and repressed the basic prohibition atop which their split subjectivity is founded. Now that's a conversation for another day, but if we take Lacan seriously here, what he's effectively saying is that science, if it has a clinical structure, is psychotic. Page 743, continuing this conversation. If, moreover, one acknowledges that psychoanalysis is essentially what brings the name of the father back into scientific examination, one comes upon the same apparent deadlock, but one has the feeling that this very deadlock spurs on progress and that one can see the chiasmus that seem to create an obstacle therein coming undone. The important part about this is that when psychoanalysis enters the field of scientific inquiry, what it brings with it and allows scientific examination to focus upon is this name of the father, which is the know of the father, which is the cause of split subjectivity. The great contribution that psychoanalysis makes to science is its turn towards objectality, towards causality. Not the field of objects and stuff, but about the openings and the cuts and divisions and differential relations that allow for objects to appear as such and thus to be studied by modern scientific minds. This opening cut differential relation that is designated with this little a. Little a is how we speak about it. The name of the father, this know of the father, this prohibitive act that first opens up that gap, really cuts us one step closer to causality. Little a designates an opening that exists. The name of the father marks the emergence of that opening. It's not the scar or the wound that you can point to, but the act of violence, if you will, that opened up that wound, that conditioned that scar to begin with. So here what Lacan is doing is he's starting with the split subject showing how the little a is that third element that represents the gap between the biomaterialistic side of us and the sociolinguistic self. And then he's going one step further and saying that if little a names an existing irreducible distance between two entities that allows them to remain distinct, the name of the father marks the emergence of that opening. It calls us back to a primordial act, a primordial prohibition, a thou shalt not, that first opened up the irreducible gap at the center of the human subject. That is what is at stake here. It's no coincidence that it's happening at the very end of this essay. 
name of the Father is the no of the Father. And if indeed truth as cause is the primary line of inquiry that psychoanalysis brings to bear, this is it. The truth of the human subject is prohibition, is the no that constitutes it, that opens it up as a split subject. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>